Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Thank you, Mr. Intro Person. It is episode 241 of the Vet Gurus. Brendan here with Mark, Friday the 13th, Mark, May the 13th, the Friday of 2022. Welcome, Mark. Welcome, listeners. VetGurus.com, the place to go. How are you, Mark? Great, Brendan. Really, really good. It's been cold. It's been very cold these last few days, but um, we've been rugged up nice and warm and we've had a few fires, a few campfires that have kept us going. You've done well. And as we spoke off air before we got our little technical glitches ironed out, which took a fair while, <laughs> you're asking me about my little little trip to Bruny Island with my wife um, a few uh, this week or last week, and yes, it was very good. And as our listeners may know or not know, uh, you were there for a fair while, Mark. And yeah, we did enjoy it. We had a good time, and very interesting place. Um, There's only one place you can have dinner, basically, isn't there? The <laughs> Bruny Pub. It's the only pub on the two two islands that are connected, and we had dinner there. Two nights in a row and uh, enjoyed it. Uh, I, I must say, Mark, Annie, Annie did uh, try the vegetable pie, which is, I think, what you had for lunch one day. I did indeed. And she thoroughly enjoyed it. So good recommendation there. I'll pass on. Uh, well, I'm passing it on now. But thank you um, for that. And uh, I tried Like that. you said, though, Brendan, it was a bit, it's an easy place to recommend. The food is excellent and there's nowhere else nowhere to go. Nowhere else to go. <laughs> That's right. And it's a bit sad that it, it, I, I drove, we had a hire car for the three days or so that we were there. And dawn to dusk, there are signs everywhere, aren't there, that be careful driving because you might hit the wallabies. Oh, it's one of the roadkill capitals of the world, it, I think. amazing. Every, every day that we'd uh, be driving around, there'd be an, another at least a dozen or so wallabies um, killed on the side of the road. And the sad thing was, uh, so we went to dinner, obviously, for those two nights, and we had a fairly early dinner, about 6 to 7 o'clock or something, and I was just crawling along in the hire car because I didn't want to wreck the hire car and get hit for any <laughs> excess for it. And then the sad thing is you get to the um, hotel and these places are offering things like wallaby um, stew, <laughs> stew and things like that. So I could have brought my own. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. But thoroughly enjoyed it, Mark. Had a good break. Yes, so that was good. And I'm um, all back Back to work. Back to work. You, back sound, to, you sound recharged. Refreshed, Mark, and recharged. So, and I'm very upbeat, Mark, because people need to visit the, our Etsy store, vetgurus.com. Go to etsy.com, E T S Y, and search for vetgurus, all one word, and look at our fantastic quality merchandise. It's a great way to help supporters. Not only do you get something that um, you'll be proud of, or perhaps not proud to wear or use or put on or drink from, depending on what product you get, that it does support us. It gives us a, a few dollars as well as a bit of marketing for us. So um, it would be great if you did that. And when you think about it, Mark, we've had just under 250 episodes. So um, 
wouldn't it be good if you've listened to a few of them or all of them that um, you can throw us a couple of dollars to help keep us going? That would be fantastic. And thank you to our main sponsors, Mark. We haven't spoken about them for a while. I'll just mention one of them, Specialised Animal Nutrition, Jen and the gang, who are the Australian distributors for Oxbow products, um, which are fantastic, including the critical care that we use by the by the bucket load. We use heaps of it um, for those bunnies and guinea pigs and sometimes other species too that are not eating the way they should. So thank you very much to those sponsors. We have to get Jen to in, in, to import a much larger bag, the silver foil bag of <laughs> the bucket. The bucket. <laughs> yes, yes, excellent stuff. Now I think Mark, you you wanted to jump in and be punchy and talk about our first news story, didn't you? Um, although I don't think you've your research hasn't been quite up to scratch. For I this know, episode. I know the the the, the difficult um, technical problems setting up tonight has meant that I've I've not spent my usual six hours reviewing and and <laughs> studying all the references for this article. But I did quickly want to talk about um, uh, how lizards keep detachable tails from falling off. We all know that many of our um, many species of lizards, and I'm fascinated by the Australian ones that do this, um, the tail autotomy uh, is a regular thing that they use to, um, to defend themselves. If they're threatened and a predator grabs them by the tail, or even some geckos don't necessarily need to be grabbed, they'll just choose to drop the wiggling tail and... Uh, and while the attention is diverted, skulk away. But the reason that um, that, that tail doesn't drop off much more frequently as the lizard might be wandering through the bushes and, um, you know, drag it or get it bumped or why doesn't it drop off all the time has been the, the subject of a, um, a pretty detailed study that was published, researchers published in uh, Science uh, in February 18th this year. Um, so they were worried about why these tails just didn't fall randomly off. And what they discovered was that the tail is made in such a way um, that the muscle groups fit together in rows like plugs into sockets. So um, the space between, the lines between these sockets uh, the fracture planes where once the tail comes off, it, it falls away easily and there's not much blood. Um, but in each of these segments, um, it's interesting how these bundles of muscle arranged circularly fit neatly into the next one. And microscopically, the surface of them is covered in a forest of protrusions. They call them micro pillars um, and they re re resemble uh, tiny mushrooms. And each surface on the surface of these, um, they have the protuberance as a pock mold with uh, tiny holes, pockmarked with tiny holes, nanopores. Um, and um, when the lizard chooses, um, it triggers a process where these uh, nanopores uh, um, separate and the uh, and the muscles then um, you know a little bit like velcro pulling away. Um, these mus the muscles can separate along the fracture planes and the tail drops off. Um, so it, it's the paper was interesting, Brendan, because I thought um, 
that it was all under sort of maybe some neurologic control. Um, and to a certain extent it is, but the way that the tales kept in place is actually much, much more complex and involves structures that aren't found yes, anywhere mechanic, else. Mechanical, yes. It's and some very pretty pictures there, Mark. Some amazing <laughs> Amazing uh, electron microscopy. Um, I love those EM pictures. They do fascinate me, and so it is good to look at the mushrooms. <laughs> yes. Mushroom shapes. One, one of them, and we'll have a link to this at our website, vetgurus.com, one of the pictures looks like a little potted plant, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> yes, it does. The bundles of mussels um, there. So, yes, excellent, excellent little article there, Mark, and, um, yeah, a fantastic um, little research project there. Mine's not quite as fancy or as dramatic as, as yours, Mark. It's just a, a little report um, where researchers in Australia have sequenced the genome of a wild dingo pup to reveal the answer of where do dingoes come from? Are they descendant from wolves or from dogs? And it was actually an international consortium, Mark, um, led by La Trobe University here in Victoria that sequenced the gen genome of one of the wild, uh, a particular wild-born dingo pup called Sandy and revealed the evolutionary position. And, well, basically that... They revealed, Mark, drumroll, pure dingoes are an intermediary between wolves and domestic dog breeds, according to their research published in Science Advances. So a bit of a letdown um, <laughs> result there, Mark. Uh, but but uh, they have confirmed that they are a bit of a bit of an in-between. Uh, so and one of the interesting things, Mark, in, in the paper that I was um, – speaking about or, or or they didn't mention in the paper wasn't part of the actual genomic sequence is that the key differences between dingoes and dogs is that the number of copies of the pancreatic amylase gene they have mark um so and it makes sense that um the they think the um well that they know that i'm pretty sure it's that, that the dingo has has very few or only one copy and and um or perhaps it's the other way around. I might be getting things confused here. Um, <laughs> dig me out of this hole, Mark. I think it, um, I think it was the, it was, um, the uh, dingo uh, that had multiple yes, copies. In order to, um, um, it's evolved that way, um, considering what diet it has. Yes, that would be correct. So that's my story, Mark. I'm not going to talk about the other little bits about the two different types of dingoes in Australia. Um, well, there are two types, the, the alpine um, dingo uh, and the non-alpine ones. So there you go. I was, just, I was just talking to my friend Angus Emmett, um, the grazier from uh, Noonbar, a big advocate for keeping dingoes on your property. And this research has really uh, set up a big um, controversy between the wild dog control people and the people who think wild dog control should not involve Oops, I think dingoes. Um, and so, yeah, it's a really interesting article and, um, and it's good that we talk about it here because I know that in many rural communities it's a topic of hot... You got me? Have you got me? Yes, I've got you, but you're dropping out a little bit. But um, we'll, we'll, So we'll push on, Mark, and hopefully the recording will keep the words that I missed from you there. Um, the interesting thing was the only reason why they, they managed to get this genome research project, was which was a five-year one, Mark, was because 
they won the world's most interesting genome competition <laughs> in 2017, which was decided by public vote. Um, so there you go. So sometimes you have to promote yourself in order to get some funding for research. So there we go. There are two articles this week, Mark. And our main topic, which we will jump in to straight away, is a part two. Mark, it's part two of our bird beaks. So our listeners may remember not too long ago in episode 235, we covered primarily the repair of bird beak injuries. And we'll just expand a little bit more about bird beaks this time and, and cover well, one of the mainly one of the common things that birds have presented to veterinary practices for, and it's probably a very common question mark that you, in particular, would receive from practitioners in asking about techniques and and when and how and why to trim the beaks of pet birds, Mark. So, I think we'll spend our the majority of our time chatting about that. So, my first question to you, Mark, is. When do we trim these bird beaks? And, you know, the classic one there would be the parrots are brought in, the budgie, the, the, um, the, the, the cockatoo, the, the, the Amazonian parrot, the whatever um, that's brought into you that the owner says, my bird's beak is elongated, it's too long, it needs trimming. So when do we decide it does need trimming? Well, that's a, that's a really excellent question. And the simple answer is when it interferes with normal function. Um, and I have a little bit of a tendency to have a very fine line here because um, it depends a little bit also, Brendan, on the underlying reason for the malocclusion. Um, for the reason, you know, why is the beak too long actually influences when we might do it. Um, so for some birds, uh, we might... Uh, see them for the first time, they have had something sore in their mouth, they haven't worn their beaks normally, we want to treat that relatively quickly so that we get all the anatomical apposition back to normal very quickly. But there are other birds who have permanent changes, maybe to the bones of the the, um, the uh, mandible or the um, um, maxillary structures. Um, and those permanent changes will mean that no matter what we do, the beak is still going to overgrow. The pressure that wears the beak normally isn't going to happen. So um, we do it when it needs to be done. Now, the loaded follow-up question to that, Mark, is how often would you be presented with a bird from a client where you do not need to trim that beak and you need to sort of gently explain to them that this is normal? Pretty often. You'd be surprised, and particularly with there's a couple of species that that's um, regularly the case. Uh, so the first one is the Eclectus parrot, um, and those parrots in the wild do have a surprisingly much longer beak than maybe um, people are used to when they look at cockatiels and budgerigars. Um, and so we've had many normal Eclectus parrots come in, and uh, and we've had to explain to I think the we've lost that it's you there, necessary Mark, so to trim that beak. We just need we'll to watch it and make sure it doesn't get too long. Get the other again. one is um, lorikeets. People will often ask us to trim lorikeets' beaks because they're too sharp. Because the birds keep 
behighting them. And so it's important for us to explain to people that, um, that that's a behavioural problem and we're not going to trim those beaks. And even if we did, um, it would be very unlikely to change the, the, the behaviour of the bird and often not even change the amount of damage it. You know, the, the pincer-like grip of the lorikeet's beak doesn't depend on the sharp point. Um, it depends on the muscles around and so uh, we don't trim those beaks either Brendan. Now I missed most of that Mark Yum, you went completely blank I got the end of it so hopefully the recording will keep that but I'll have it looks like I'll be spending a bit of time in editing and I assume that it recorded on your end <laughs> so the next question is um, <laughs> the approach to how do you do this how do you do the trimming of the Mark do you want to walk us through that process? Definitely. It, and the short answer is very carefully. You've got to remember one of the funny things about beaks is that, um, you know, we treat them like horny, keratinized uh, structures, like maybe a, you know, horn on a cow. Um, and they definitely are that, but they are, they have a whole series of nervous structures that infiltrate in between the layers of keratin. And so we do have to be very careful that we're not causing um, uh, pain. And generally speaking, those nervous structures and the vascular structures are restricted to the normal anatomy. And so when you're trimming off excessive keratin, you're not going to damage them. But you do have to be aware that um, that it's not just a, you know, um, a, uh, a careless, quick um, snip and everything's good. And I do tend to avoid using nail trimmers and, and scissor-like uh, um, methods, uh, methods that involve uh, tools that work like scissors because um, they definitely crush and cause longitudinal fractures. And so dental equipment, maybe a Dremel, um, these things need to um, be very carefully, uh, very cautiously taken back. And so, of course, that means um, a very short anaesthe anaesthetic. And the dust that's produced by the bird's beak will mean that you almost certainly have to intubate the bird to prevent it from inhaling um, that aerosolized keratin powder. Okay. Um, so it's a bit of a art, is it, for trying to work out how much to take back and I presume you're trying to reshape it uh, to have sort of normal... Occlusion, what do you call it, occlusion, Mark? Definitely, um, that's exactly the word I'd use. So we can't really walk through the actual um, method or, or the angles that we well, need think, to do. What, what I think the key thing I always say here is to try and become very familiar with what looks normal um, and whether that's a couple of photographs or, um, uh, or other birds that might be in the hospital or, um, you know, if you are visiting an aviary, make sure that you use your iPhone to, or even if you're doing a, a consult on a bird, maybe getting some photographs for the record, but also just um, becoming familiar with the normal shape. Um, and that can definitely give you a, you know, a very good guide as to uh, where the beak should be. I often find that if I mark the beak with an on-toxic marker, one of those surgical markers, um, that gives me a Great little tip. bit of a guide as to how far to go. Um, because when you're in the process, you, you, you know, you, it is sometimes easy to go too far. And so having a bit of a guide there to know um, this line I'm going to get to, that line I'm going to get to. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. And I think some magnification helps because oftentimes, more than once I've been caught, Brendan, doing this, and um, there will be granulomatous or even neoplastic structures under the keratin outside the normal sort of, uh, you know, range where normal healthy tissue will be. And if you grind that with your dental instrument or Dremel, um, you can have a little bit of a horrendous hemorrhage. So just watching very closely, taking it slow layer by layer and, uh, yeah, marking the area you're going to cut before you get there. Mm. So you don't recommend trimming these beaks with the bird awake. And I do know that there are, I'd say, a large number of vets who do perform that task. Look, my experience is that when the beaks are trimmed with the bird conscious, um, generally speaking, you can't get a precise enough placement of your instrument to ensure there's no collateral damage to adjacent tissue. And, you know, um, if you were to have a sulfur-crested cockatoo and have a dental instrument playing around its beak, there'd be a very good chance that you would lacerate the tongue. Um, so I... and the scissor type, you know, like I said, nail clippers and whatnot that are sometimes used to knock the, the keratin off, they almost invariably cause longitudinal fractures and pain. Um, they allow for infection to set up secondarily to that microtrauma, um, and the bird's lives are very often shortened by the use of, uh, of um, nail trimmers to trim beaks. Yes, we certainly don't like those nail trimmers, do we? Um what happen, What do you do when you do accidentally go a tad too far and you've um, cut into some bleeding tissue there? And I think this is where taking it slow helps because if you're a little bit too bold um, and just uh, pound in there really quickly with the uh, heaviest grade, the heaviest grain on your um, uh, sanding uh, circular tool, um, then you can get way deep into some of that vascular tissue and you can have a significant hemorrhage that can be a problem. Um, so taking it slow and stopping immediately, you get that sort of tiny spot of capillary ooze. And when I do do that, um, I'll often use, I find uh, tissue cement um, over that area um, tends to be the best way to um, stop the hemorrhage. It's good because it works best when you haven't got huge amounts of blood flow. So if you've just like grazed the germinal epithelium and there's a couple of spots of blood. Yeah. Um, or you see that slight system. pink. You see it almost about to, about yeah. to bleed, don't you? Yes. Exactly. Excellent. Um, and how often do we do it? Well, that depends a little bit on the, the, the nature of the bird. So we have some, uh, say, budgerigars who might have um, a chronic liver disease that's slowly being treated at the same time. But liver disease changes the nature of the proteins in keratin and makes it more difficult for the bird to wear. And so some of those birds will have very, very long, straight beaks um, and... Um, and it's still able to eat very well and maintain body weight. And so we might only do those birds once every six months um, to keep them normal. There'll be other beak birds who um, need uh, more frequent trimming, um, who won't be able to eat uh, because of maybe a tightly 
curved uh, beak that uh, that impinges on you know the tissue, the healthy tissue of the lower jaw. Um, and we certainly have had some birds with a very tight, curved, uh, damaged upper beak that um, they haven't been able to close their beak properly at all. It does still amaze me, Brendan, how many of them, you know, even without the prehending um, and cracking ability of the beak, they can um, they can still scoop up uh, often the pelleted foods that uh, you know that the seed unhusked seeds they're not going to be able to digest. But um, if these birds get onto pelleted food, it's surprising how long they can last between trims and still remain healthy. Yes, good point. So we've ripped through that, haven't we? Um, any any other general sort of tips or tricks you want to mention about? the standard trimming of these parrot birds? The only other thing I was going to mention, Brendan, was that um, it's important to think in three dimensions. So you'll look at the bird and I call it wasting. You'll use a circular, you know, a Dremel or whatever to uh, narrow down one side, narrow down the other side, watching to make sure you don't have any bleeding. But then you've also got to make sure that you, um, you know, work on the underside as well. And if there is an occlusion, if the lower beak, for example, right, you know, you'll we've all heard, seen those birds with scissor beaks, you can sometimes arrange uh, almost like a, a plate arrangement. You can arrange the upper beak so that it catches the lower beak and drives it into a more normal position. So having a big long think about what you're trying to achieve, thinking in three dimensions, marking the beak um, and watching out for bleeding, I think you'd get all those things right and you'll have a good result. Excellent. I think we should briefly chat about a couple of other species of birds with some interesting beak designs, Mark. So do you want to chat about some of the wonderful cases you've seen? I was going to mention um, we've done a number of uh, uh, prosthetic beaks for um, uh, ducks in particular, um, and those I'm, I'm always in two minds about those um, because they, like any prosthesis, they're never going to be a perfect replacement for a normal healthy beak. Um, but we've had good success with some ducks um, with a relatively small amount of beak missing um, that we can apply a uh, 3D printed uh, plastic prosthesis um, and have it uh, fitted um, and um, and yeah those birds can eat relatively normally like most prostheses I put it in everyone's mind that you've got to remove them every once in a while and clean up the tissue underneath if they sit there um, and they're never maintained then there definitely will be infection and food and whatever that gets caught underneath. Um, but they are good cases to work with as well, Brendan. How long do they last? Uh, my experience has been that we would regularly get something like 12 to, you know, three to six months out of that sort of prosthesis. Um, so uh, it's not a lifelong thing. And some of the more long-lived birds, you would uh, need to be very cautious about um, going to all the trouble. But for some um, well-loved uh, animals that the structure can be made relatively easily, um, it's a, a worthwhile exercise, I think. And what about some of our other less seen bird species mark um actually let's chat about um 
another group where using that beak is obviously very important. Raptors, any specific comments you want to chat about with raptor beak issues? Well, they, but I was going to mention um, amongst the raptors and the uh, and particularly kookaburras are something that we see quite regularly. Magpies as well. Um, they might have uh, um, uh, parasitic problems. Um, they may have at, at a very early stage in their life. They may have uh, things like. Um, gape worms and um, um, parasites, uh, uh, sometimes the trichomonas infections in um, birds of prey will cause structural damage to the bones of the beak. And even if you can get the, the, uh, the actual infection uh, sorted, you'll often have permanent changes to those beaks. Um, and my experience has not been good, Brendan, with trying to get those animals um, to a state where they can uh, look after themselves. If those parasites do cause permanent damage to the the beak, I think we're going to have to think about euthanasia with a lot of those birds of prey and uh, carnivorous birds. Mm, interesting. And what about, let's jump over to something completely different. Um, any beak problems you've seen in our, in the ratites? I've, I have only seen two cases of damaged beaks with the ratites and, um, and they were poorly occluded they the birds had uh, significant injuries um i think that they, they we thought they were injuries but um they could have even been developmental problems leading to poor occlusion but those birds are tough brendan and um and with just a little bit of additional care to ensure they uh, were able to ingest food we didn't go to the trouble of um prostheses or uh, surgical correction but the birds did really well because they're they're so um, resilient. Um, they're excellent birds to work with. Our friend Doug would be very proud of you, Mark. Uh, I treat him that. Um, well, we've ripped through that, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very small subset of beak conditions that we wanted to chat about today, but we did want to talk about the trimming of the bird beaks especially because it's such a common presentation especially in even with veterinarians who are not seeing birds very often so we wanted to go through a few tips and tricks about about the process of, of dealing with those do you have any sort of final thoughts or comments about trimming beaks in particular mark just the only closing thing i'd say is um when they're very slight and early, then don't hesitate to give those ones a go straight away because a small proportion of them will like correct and you'll never have to do them again. Um, but then afterwards, obviously, you know, you've got to maintain them and leave them as long as you, you possibly can between um, episodes. Um, when the birds start to fail to prehend food is a good time to get in there and, and trim those beaks. Great advice, Mark, as usual. Your Spot on. And we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.